And welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. I am your host, Andre Degler, and today we are going to talk about drone delivery and also learn what the initiator of the Solar Impulse project is doing on the ground. But let's start, as usual, with a European tech news briefing, courtesy of our reporter, Annie Musgrove. Hi, I'm Annie Musgrove of Tech EU, and here are some of the most important news stories in European tech. Mobile World Congress, the world's biggest phone show based in Barcelona, has been canceled for the first time in the 33 years of its existence. In a statement, GSMA said that, quote, the global concern regarding the coronavirus outbreak, travel concern and other circumstances make it impossible for the GSMA to hold the event. In the weeks preceding the decision, a number of industry heavyweights like Sony, LG, NVIDIA and others pulled out of the event, citing health concerns. Together with Mobile World Congress, GSMA has canceled its sister event for tech startups called Four Years From Now. This leaves the tech community in Barcelona scrambling to improvise an alternative event for entrepreneurs, investors, and other ecosystem players. As of Friday night, there was no clear announcement, but according to the reports on Twitter, it's quite possible that something will materialize. And as for our own event, Mobile Sunday by Tech EU, we're going to make a final decision on Monday around the time this podcast goes live. Stay tuned to our Twitter at tech underscore EU to be the first to find out. Berlin-based digital bank N26 is pulling out of the UK, blaming the country's decision to leave the European Union last month, Sifted reports. The startup said on Tuesday that it's unable to operate in the UK with its EU banking license, which has led it to the decision to leave the UK and close all accounts in April. Some industry experts, however, aren't sold on this explanation. The main argument here is that N26 was obviously aware of Brexit coming. So their take is that N26 has been struggling to catch up with competitors in the UK and is now using Brexit as an excuse to pull out of a market that's just proven too tough. Speaking of the competitors of the neobank, they're reportedly seeing a significant uptick in new customers following the N26 announcement. For example, Monzo saw an increase in payments of over 250% made into Monzo from N26 on the day of the announcement. Next, Google has entered a new phase in its fight with the EU over the 2.4 billion euro fine it was slapped with in 2017. The issue was that the search giant allegedly promoted its own shopping service in the search results and demoted others. Google has already paid the fine and changed its behavior, but it's also appealing the decision in the EU general court. The hearing in this case began a few days ago, and it already seems like Google's unlikely to win this one. Here's a snippet from Politico's report on the hearing. The judge at several times interrupted the responses of Google's lawyers and told lawyer Meredith Pickford, quote, You're now obfuscating with the greatest of respect. We're playing a Monopoly game. I think you landed on the go-directly-to-jail case. Next, the European music streaming pioneer SoundCloud, which is based in Berlin, has raised 75 million U.S. dollars, TechCrunch reports. The funding comes from the U.S., from radio giant Sirius XM, which also owns Pandora. This is the first money injection after a major crisis at SoundCloud two and a half years ago, when it laid off 173 people, closed offices in San Francisco and in London, and was reportedly very close to bankruptcy. So what's next for SoundCloud? 
Here's a bit of analysis from TechCrunch's Ingrid Lunden. It's a tempting thought to wonder if this could convert into an acquisition of SoundCloud by SiriusXM. Indeed, it does provide a complement to Pandora and potentially fills a gap both for international audience, over 200 million tracks from 25 million creators with listeners in 190 countries, and also more original content. Klarna has acquired Italian payment company Moneymore, purchasing the startup from founders and minority investors. With the acquisition, the Swedish fintech company is establishing a product development hub in Milan and a foothold in the Italian e-commerce market. Moneymore, which was founded in 2017, allows online shoppers to buy on the spot and pay later in monthly installments, which is quite close to what Klarna itself does. After the acquisition, which is expected to close as soon as this business quarter, the intellectual property and full team of Moneymore will be integrated into Klarna. Facebook was forced into an embarrassing postponement of its new dating service across all of Europe just 36 hours before Valentine's Day, Independent IE reports. Ireland's Data Protection Commission, which oversees Facebook's operation across the EU, sent agents to the social media giant's offices in person in Dublin because Facebook had not informed the regulatory body of the launch. A spokesperson for DPC, Helen Dixon, said that Facebook only informed it on February 3rd that the dating launch was occurring on February 13th. So the DPC is now reviewing documentation, and there's no indication as to when the service may go live. In the biggest funding deal of the week, Farfetch has raised $250 million U.S. million from China's Tencent and the U.S.-based investment firm Dragoneer. Farfetch calls itself, quote, a global technology platform for the luxury fashion industry. Its marketplace platform connects customers in 190 countries with items from more than 50 countries and over 1,200 brands, boutiques, and department stores. This funding round brings the total amount raised by Farfetch to almost 1 billion U.S. dollars. Next, Vodafone is going to spend 200 million euro to remove Huawei equipment from the sensitive core parts of its mobile networks across Europe over the next five years. According to a report by The Guardian, Vodafone has made this decision after the UK government decided to limit the use of Huawei equipment in the country's 5G network. Nick Reed, Vodafone's chief executive, warned that the other European nations probably shouldn't follow the UK's 35% cap on Huawei equipment and non-core parts of mobile networks, the masts and towers. According to Reed, this could delay 5G rollout in those countries by two to five years. Next, Facebook has quietly acquired Scape Technologies, paying a reported 40 million US dollars, according to TechCrunch. The London-based computer vision startup was founded in 2017 with an idea to develop a visual positioning service that would offer location accuracy beyond the capabilities of GPS. The technology initially targeted augmented reality apps, but also has the potential to power applications in mobility, logistics, and robotics. More broadly, Scape wanted to enable any machine equipped with a camera to understand its surroundings. Next, the European Union was planning to call for a five-year blanket moratorium on the use of facial recognition technology in public spaces and has now backed away from that plan, the Financial Times reports. The publication says that it's seen a draft of a paper to be published by the EU this week. In it, Brussels states that facial recognition is prone to inaccuracy, can be used to breach privacy laws, and can facilitate identity fraud. However, it's now proposing that member states can each make their own decision of whether to ban the technology. 
These were some of the most important tech news in Europe from the week of February 10th. I'm Annie Musgrove. Now back to Andre. Thank you so much, Annie, for this great recap. And I am certainly very interested right now in what happens in Barcelona after all. But I have to say that I do have a feeling that it's going to be a great experience for everyone involved. Now, let's get to what I have prepared for you in today's podcast episode. First, I want to talk about the drone startup uh, that's called Winkcopter. The German company made news a couple of weeks ago for its pilot project with the pharma giant Merck. One of Winkopter's drones covered a distance of 25 kilometers and delivered a payload of pigments between two office facilities of the company in Germany. So I got interested in this company for two reasons. First, it's one of the very few flights beyond the line of sight. That means that, again, the operator would not see the drone uh, while it's uh, flying its route. So it's generally not allowed anywhere in Europe unless you obtain a special permit, which you need to obtain for each flight. And that's a bit of a problem, of course, for the companies that are trying to solve drone delivery. And the other reason my curiosity was picked was the photo of the drone that was posted on TechCrunch. It's a really weird-looking one, I have to say. It looks like a normal quadrocopter with those four blades, but also it has an airplane-like wing and a stabilizer in the rear part. So it kind of it, it's kind of weird, so I really wanted to learn more. And so I decided to talk to Tom Plummer, uh, the CEO and co-founder of Wingcopter, to learn more about the company and, of course, about the state of the drone delivery industry these days in general. The idea behind Wingcopter actually started already uh, very early. So, like, we are building a VTOL, uh, an eVTOL, so-called uh, an electric vertical takeoff drone. And by now it's a bit more common. You will see more systems in that space, um, like, who can take off vertically, but then once in the air, at some point, they they do a transition into a fixed-wing system. So it's a multi-copter plus fixed-wing configuration and um, the idea is you can take off on a very small space vertically, um, which is pretty good and basically what a drone normally does. But then once in the air, because we have wings and we have a so-called, and it's the core innovation behind the wingcopter, a so-called tilt rotor mechanism, we can tilt all the four rotors and it becomes a fixed wing system within seconds. Very smooth transition. And then you can fly like a fixed wing system normally does, very long, like very long ranges, and you can fly very fast. We have even a Guinness speed record, uh, so we are flying up to 240 kilometer per hour, uh, top speed. And we can fly, like the maximum range, uh, we can fly is 120 kilometer uh, with one battery pack. Uh, and it can also carry up to six kilo. So this is always the top, uh, top values, um, top specs. Um, but it's, if you look at the ratio of payload and, uh, and range, we are one of the strongest system in the market right now, um, looking at this size class. So our wingspan is roughly uh, one meter seventy eight. So let's say in the in the size category of two meters, we are the strongest VTOL so far. Um, and yeah, back in the days, we started with this idea already in two thousand ten, two thousand eleven. We had the idea. So Jonathan, my co-founder, uh, Jonathan Hesselbart, he is like the CTO and the inventor, and at that time, there was really no commercial VTOL drone out there, uh, which actually had these great specs. So, so actually, I, I don't even, I think actually we kicked that off kind of. Um, uh, I don't want to say we, we invented uh, vertical takeoff uh, aircrafts because there was the Osprey before. There was the, um, some Dornier uh, aircraft since the 60s. So 
the, uh, people have tried vertical takeoff and efficient forward flight before. But the new thing in 2010 and 11, when Jonathan started building the first prototypes, was that we, uh, or he basically uh, scaled this down to a drone version and used instead of two, he used four rotors, which is the multicopter configuration. And um, by doing that, he, he basically kicked off this movement of small um, VTOL drones. Uh, again, we didn't see any other inventions like this at that time. He uploaded the first YouTube videos and major companies like um, like from the Silicon Valley and some other uh, universities, they called him directly. And so basically from day one, when he started building the first prototypes, he could sell the drones and it became more and more famous. The Wingcopter became like a brand name. So he just like the name was basically taking a copter, Uh, bringing it together with a wing system, a fixed wing system, and that's the Wingcopter. And then this name became a brand by now. Um, and yeah, we inspired, I think, a lot of people. So the, the videos he uploaded, uh, they, 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 uh, inspired people to build similar systems. So we created competition in some way, but also in very interesting dynamics. So the drone market is, is by now like booming and you see more and more of these systems. But still, since we keep innovating since 2011, um, it's actually constantly improving. So that's why the tech specs are still much better than, and even if you look at the big big companies like Google Wing, if you look at um, the Amazon drone, uh, which are which are great drones, I don't want to say they are, they are not good, but looking at the specs, the range, the payload, the f f speed, uh, flight time, it's we are really like ahead. Uh, and this is because on the one side we started very early and on the other side, Jonathan invented this very, very cool tilt rotor technology which we were able to patent in 2012. So by now we have the patents in the, yeah, in the, in the places where it's very necessary, like US, um, China, Russia, uh, Japan and Europe and so on and so forth. So many, many, um, uh, patents for that, for that configuration. But what I actually found even more interesting than the company itself was Tom's motivation and the story of how he actually became the co-founder of Wingcopter. Let's say despite all the technology um, improvements, there's so much technology in the world right now, so much great things happening, but also still so many people are left behind. When you look at the world, like there are many places and, and billions of people where they have uh, they they are they have no no good infrastructure uh, so meaning no good um, supply chains are available uh, which ends up to have like very bad um uh very bad health systems so i was living before I, we we started wingcopter so Jonathan was always an inventor he he started mechanical engineering uh he's a pioneer in this vtol technology and um I was not really, uh, I'm not, not an engineer. I was, uh, I was, uh, studying more, uh, product design, media management, uh, media design and also, uh, communication design. And then I went to, to the African continent for two years, first to work for NGOs, then to study there. And I experienced lots of great stuff, like the motivation of the people, like all this energy without having not so much, but still being very happy. So I, I met very, great people and I and I experienced the African continent on a very positive way. But also I figured out that there's really a lot of um struggle when it comes to uh supply chains of of or cool chains for, for health systems uh, or for health um care. And I, I saw like I experienced one or two sis, uh, things uh because I lived in a very small village and uh the neighbor um uh, a woman she got, uh, got gave birth and then the child 
that was very painful, died just after a few days because of a very simple sickness and it could have been cured. And that was just because we had no good infrastructure for medicals in this village and the, the next hospital was really far away, like a proper hospital. And it's also expensive. Uh, if you, if you go to hospitals in, in a, in such a country, you don't, there's no, no, not these infra, infrastructure and insurances we have here. So it was just painful to see that. And I realized Improving supply chains by drones, because at that time I was already working a little bit in the drone space, just more because of my filmmaking experience and I used drones for filmmaking. And I was not satisfied with the technology, the speed, the flight time, it was all not really good. So I was looking for an engineer who could maybe build a better drone and who could help me uh, working on improving supply chains and maybe using drones even for also agriculture and some other, there, there are many great applications coming with drones. So that was more my motivation. And then meeting Jonathan, who already since 2010 worked on some prototypes of this great wingcopter, and we coming together, um, yeah, created a very nice synergy. And yeah, I brought in like these ideas for use cases and, and basically how we can make enable his technology, which he invented, to do good. And that was basically also the the, the, the idea behind Wingcopter. Can we use drones for good? And, um, that's what we do today. We don't want to do it uh, or work in the military sector. We decided against it by purpose because like by, by intention, we said we, we don't want to go there. We want to push humanitarian projects with drones and we want to save lives, improve lives with our Wingcopter technology. And that's what we are working on full time by now. Confirming something that I expected already, uh, Tom said that uh, these days Wingcopter is seemingly becoming not just a drone manufacturer, but also sort of a logistics and fleet management startup. So at the beginning, um, we were just manufacturing and selling. Still, we, 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 we see ourselves as a manufacturer who sells drones. Uh, it's, it's fine because it's a good part of our revenue. But by now, we realize some clients just don't want only to buy uh they they prefer that we also operate so we offer uh this as well um you can you can uh, book our service if you want and uh, then there are different levels of service so we can do everything and uh you don't need to worry about running drones having drones in your asset or operating training operators um but also if someone wants to become an operator we train and we enable so this is actually also looking at the humanitarian space and our activities there we want to enable Uh, like NGOs and companies, local companies to scale. So our vision is that we really help locals um, to scale their businesses. And by scaling their business, we grow with them. So, and this can be done in different ways. It can be by selling our technology to them, but also they rent our technology. We enable them doing the operations. We might support them as long as they want with the operations. And at some point we hand it over so they can be on their own. And then once they start scaling again, we profit from it as well so it's it's a win-win i would say so we are we are really like we give our technology away and i think this is a key difference to many others they keep everything in-house like 100 they they don't want to give out their drones i mean it's tricky if you give out your drones it's much harder and you you need much more reliable technology than if you own it and you just don't care if it crashed because you can replace it and no one really gets to know because you just keep i mean of course if it's a crash people might see it but basically We spoke to some of our competitors and they, they, they just, they just like to have everything by themselves and then just give out contracts. Uh, you can, you can book their service, but if something happens to the drone, they just replace it and so on and so forth. So we want to rather enable people to do as much as they want. Um, 
and give them the best technology they can get uh, in the market. Unfortunately, I could not get you a good answer about the actual price of a Wingcopter drone, uh, since there are a number of different configurations of uh, the machines, but also it appears that the whole pricing model is still sort of in the works, uh, because there are different possibilities, uh, like where a customer would rent a drone and uh, then maybe operate it themselves, or pay Wingcopter to do that. It's not crazy expensive, I would say, when you look at normal drone prices, uh, especially for industrial drones. Um, it's not not like you cannot work with us because you have a small budget. Let's make it work. That's what I would say. Like if you come to us and you let us know what you what you what you have and what you don't have, and the application is we want to save lives and improve lives. And if you work according to this, we we want to make it work. So there's always a way to talk. So how about that Merck project that I mentioned at the beginning, and how are Wingcopter and Merck connected? Merck is a big pharma company in Germany, uh, which supported us since since quite long. So they, basically the CEO, uh, I, I heard a speech of, of him about innovation, and then I just tried to talk to him, and I told him um, after his speech uh, that we actually are working on a drone which in future should deliver medicals. That was some two and a half years, three years ago. Um, so when I met him, we were still working on the prototypes and working on not the prototypes, but we were working on the solution of uh, improving supply chains. So I told him that we, we want to Im improve uh, deliveries of medicals. And since they are a company which produces medicals, it might be interesting to discuss that. And interestingly, they just started an accelerator program. It's called the Merck Accelerator, which is a great thing. So they, I think roughly 400 people apply. That was at least last batch. And uh, then they, they select, I think, 10 or 12 companies and you get support for three months. You get coaching, um, some funding. You can decide if you get funding and you give away some uh, some percentage on your on your revenue or something like that. There's some model where you give something back, but also they have a model where you can just get money and you don't need to give anything, which is uh, very interesting because I like accelerators who give you the chance to at least decide for which one you like more. Some people like uh, giving shares away because let's say if you are, if you are a pharma, pharma startup and you want Merck to be your main customer in the future, you might, you might like them to be a shareholder as well because then they, they are very tied to you. For us, it was more like a drone company with a pharma company. It's nice, nice to have the network, but it's, it wasn't, it wasn't as important to have like sh giving away shares to them. So we decided for that other version that we get money a little less than uh, normally. And then we don't give away equity, but still they, they helped us in, in, we got some funding from them. We got an office space and the really great thing was, um, they were, they were allowing us to stay longer. So normal time is three months. To stay at their um, at their office, it's a huge new innovation center. So it's it's really an epic building, and uh, we were the first people when they moved in to move in with them. And they have uh, in sixth floor or level six, they have a huge uh, a huge maker space. So 3D printers, laser cutters, uh, different kinds of uh, uh, machines to work, and then also all these people working for Merck, helping in innovation. So whenever you have an idea or something, you can ask them, they help because they're just there. So they, they will help you all the time just for that purpose. They are, they are there. So, so Merck supported us in this sense. Uh, and then we wanted to give something back. So we suggested let's, let's really talk about delivering things from, from your one factory here in Darmstadt, where we are based, uh, to it's, um, yeah, to, to basically 30 kilometers away, uh, the facility where they, actually create the the laboratory things so there was 
on the one side there was the station where things get analyzed and on the other side there was uh, the station where the things get produced and every day someone is driving from a to b uh, and back from b to a to to deliver these samples where uh, so they get analyzed and we suggested can we not just showcase to you that our drone will, which will uh, will be much more uh, effective in the sense if we build a landing spot, and we didn't even need to build that, it's just landing uh, right next to the laboratory, so it's, it doesn't even need any infrastructure. We could just take the drone and showcase that we can fly the 30 kilometers uh, much faster, so we just need a few minutes. But also, not just that, um, we can also, or we prove that um, it's on demand, and it was a very huge thing for Germany, I would say, because, or generally for the drone industry, because it was the first time a real BVLOS project happened in Germany over such a long distance, crossing uh, highways, power lines, uh, rivers, uh, and and other uh, infrastructure and, and villages and stuff. So we were really flying. I mean, we fly. We were flying the most safest route. So we looked that we don't cross bigger cities. But still, uh, you can't avoid crossing streets or, or flying over people. So we were really happy getting the permission from our government. We got some grant from the Ministry of Infrastructure. So that was like a, a big, big showcase to prove BVLOS is not just working in some very remote, far away Pacific Island areas or somewhere in Africa, but it's also actually working in Germany and by showing this, it can work also, yeah, for sure, in the US and in England and wherever you want to go with this. We basically created, uh, yeah, the starting point for for talking about BVLOS projects in Germany now and seriously taking it to the next level. Right. And uh, just for my own understanding and curiosity, sir, how does this flight happen? Do you have this whole flight route already programmed? Do you control it uh, through the camera? And what's the uh, what's the altitude that the drone uh, flies on? So in Germany, the altitude is basically limited to 100 meters. So we have a very low altitude for that project um, based on the rules and regulations. And then uh, we don't really use a camera um, because of privacy reasons like uh, the factory, but also uh, private people in their houses, they prefer to not be filmed or something. So we just fly by waypoints. Um, we follow the waypoints uh, as it's quite usual for drones to pre-program the mission and then upload the mission. We can still control or, or, or come in manually if we want. So let's say at the landing spot, we had someone for safety. If anything, he could have taken over the drone manually and landed. But normally it's fully automated. So it really takes off. It turns in the direction of the first waypoint. It does the transition of the rotors. Then it flies efficiently, um, flying around the cities which it could normally cross but we we planned the route in a way that it can yeah fly the most safest way and at the end it does the back transition it hovers down to the final point and it has delivered the lab samples on the other side safely mm -hmm. and does the drone have any sensors on it that would for example uh, detect uh, any obstacles uh, that uh, come on its way so we are working and testing on different solutions for sense and avoid for example um and also what happens when the gps fails so waypoints are lost and then still it should do some safe landing so we have tested different technologies for that um but it's more in the r&d so for the actual flights we did bvlos we just really followed the waypoints we could have the chance to interact with the drone directly if anything it didn't nothing happens it was a super safe flight and everything was successful but just in case we could have 
taking over the drone manually or, or normally there are like there there are some other things like return to launch uh, uh, safety failure uh, things implemented so if anything it can come back home it can also just louder and and kind of stay uh, at at some point when we say um, stop the mission because maybe an, an aircraft is coming in like in uh, sometimes you know there are these rescue helicopters which are not planned so if they would for example we know like we watched we were able actually to What we had implemented for that project was a, a small thing from a startup called Drunique, which is a joint venture from the German air traffic control and the Deutsche Telekom. And that was like a flight tracker. Uh, it's like a digital number plate for the drone. And we tested this. It was also a big thing for them because it was the first time this was like really tested in some German Bivilos operations, which could be a commercial operation delivering actual samples. Um, And we could, I was actually in, uh, at that time we did the flights. I was already in Kigali, Rwanda for the African drone forum. And while sitting in the, in the, in the hall, listening to the speeches, I could look on my, uh, phone screen and I saw the live flight, not by video, but I saw the tracking. So I could see like, okay, now it just passed this one village and now it will fly to the next village. And so I could live see. And then I, at some point I, I realized, okay, that was the landing now. And then I wrote my team. Okay. Was everything fine? And they said, yeah, we just landed and sent me a picture. So I was, I was even aware they just landed before they sent me the picture because I could track the whole flight on my phone and just see it live, which is quite impressive and cool. And I think it's actually very helpful to have this live data from that little tracker. And it's also, it's this tracking includes flam and adsb so also other planes could see it i could even see other planes at the same time flying like of course in a far distance but um i could see like where other planes are maybe crossing our our way um and by seeing all this we can plan much better uh, and also we live we can live interact if anything um so this thing was very helpful that little uh tracker sure Yeah, 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 absolutely. And uh, so, okay, you talked about privacy already, and I think there are two main concerns for uh, like uh, private individuals about uh, drones. One is privacy, which you kind of have solved, and the other is noise. How noisy is a wingcopter? So, in terms of noise, the it's always a big thing. Uh, I think generally acceptance of drones, um, especially when we want to do deliveries. I think the drone itself is very helpful to improve deliveries, like improve supply chain and, and cold chain deliveries and all that in developing countries, but even in industrial countries, like everywhere around the world. The only question is when will people accept a few thousand drones flying above their heads uh, safely? Of course, that's the most important thing. You need to prove a, a safety record um, that your drone is not like um, a problem or a threat to people. The second thing is the privacy, as you just said. Luckily, we don't need the cameras. It's nice to have a live view, and we tested this as well. So for some application in some countries we work, we have a live feed uh, because it's needed for like inspection reasons, um, but it's flying where no one lives. So looking at flying in cities or above cities or next to cities, um, we currently don't really implement a camera. And the other thing is um, the noise. You're right. Uh, it's always a major concern. For Winkop, that's a good thing, and we impressed Many companies who came for a demo. So we always, what we normally do before we start a project or someone buys, we invite them. So we meet and we do an actual flight and then we sit down and discuss the business case and what's the best pricing model to it, but, um, which works for both sides for sure. But, but the other question is always, okay, as you just asked, how noisy is the wingcopter? 
And um, the good thing is really in transition or after transition, for takeoff, it's like a multicopter. So not louder, not, not less noise. Um, that's why you should really plan well where you take off because it's like a drone when it takes off. But again, it's not louder. So it's not really a threat. It's just like a multicopter or a helicopter. Yeah, definitely less noise than a helicopter. But once rotors are looking up in the air and they tilt uh, and they, they are not tilted, it's a multicopter. The, the second it tilts, actually, that's when it gets really interesting because it becomes super quiet. The, the reason is we don't need four rotors anymore. So we switch off the back ones and they, they fold their propellers to be more aerodynamic. So the back, back rotors, they are, they are turning off. Uh, because for a fixed wing aircraft, you, one propeller or two propellers are definitely enough. Um, and then, yeah, the back ones are, uh, are switching off and the propellers are, are folding. So it's foldable propellers. So it's more aerodynamic. They just fold by the wind, by the drag of the wind. They just fold. And when we switch them on again for landing, they will flip and be used again. Or when we, when we want to fly like beyond 200 kilometers per hour, we use all the four. That's when we turn on all the four rotors. But normally we don't need four. And that's why it's, it's getting even less quiet. Because using just two is great, and then using two in like tilted position, like forward, it, it doesn't really have this hover hover sound. So you don't really hear the system. And if you have like some, let's say, street noise from like cars driving uh, passing by you, uh, or, or like the normal sound you have being surrounded by people and cars and whatever, you will not hear the wingcopter. You will just not hear it. If it's at 100 meter height, you don't really realize there's a drone uh, flying around up there. And even if it's if it would be mo many more drones, so let's say if two hundred wingcopters flying up there, you wouldn't really re you wouldn't really realize it as long as you have normal noise around you. Of course, if it's a super silent place, you hear there's some something up in the air, but even that wouldn't give you like worries because it's not loud at all. And I think we have really we have really really low noise uh, in forward flight, less than I would say the competition. So I didn't see a system flying this 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 quiet. Um, so far and if anyone wants to believe me uh, we invite you to to pass by for a demo <laughs> sounds good so uh, last question really uh, the whole drone delivery market it seems to be kind of heating up over the past uh, few years so what's your what's your forecast here just briefly what do you think is going to happen within the next uh, few years in this space so asking um, for the future of the drone industry i think it's it's going to be really mind-blowing i think what we what we have now is where we uh, had the car industry roughly 100 years ago so really at the early stage we are not even at the tipping point or anything we are just really at the beginning still a lot of r&d a lot of tests like a lot of pocs where the technology just prove itself but the real implementation into everyday life and the real use cases which we love to see more like for our projects, we are looking at sustainable sustainability right now. We don't want to do always POCs anymore. We don't like only doing flights for PR. We want to really start saving lives, improving lives, using our technology in everyday lives for delivery of medicals like blood, vaccines, um, lab samples, but also to deliver uh, at some point sustainable and commercially feasible um, like packages, e-commerce parcel, uh, uh, parcel deliveries, parcel copter deliveries, up to food deliveries, for example. Um, and then food in, in all sense, maybe food to the market, to the African market, but also like some food when you just want to order and you want to have it faster. So we are actually already testing these things and they are really successful. Um, so looking at these deliveries, now, now we want to see them becoming like 
spread over countries and really national wide uh, applications fleet management is something we are looking into we want to have like many drones interacting with each other and building up like really actual sustainable networks of drones and this is still just the beginning i think so what i think when i look at into 10 years for example i think we have really big networks of delivery drones i think it will be by then really well implemented and part of our daily life um, I see also a lot of great tests by then uh, from air, like with air taxis. I think um, it's still going to be quite tough to to have them everywhere. Um, air taxis will be um, a bit more tricky probably. Um, but also, like many companies are pushing for this right now already, and um, I believe that drones they have a bright future, uh, and hopefully they will not just be used in the military uh, um, um, direction where they are coming from, but more and more used in again everyday life to to improve life and this is what we ac actively work on and i'm excited for that future and i think uh, what i'm always saying a little bit like as uh, as my my vision is like we want to create the future we wish for instead of waiting for it and i think this is ha happening now with with our company we're creating we we actually wish for drones doing good and that's what we are pushing uh, every day and yeah i really just see the industry at a point where it's it's very early and it's going to be massively growing And again, hopefully in the positive way that drones really do good and save life. And I think it is a great way to end this segment. I have certainly more than satisfied my curiosity today. And I do hope that you have also learned something new about the drone delivery industry and about its prospects in Europe. Now, let's move on to the next point in our agenda. I wanted to share a great interview that our founding editor, Robin Wouters, recorded recently with Bertrand Picard at the Change Now Summit. So Bertrand is a psychiatrist by training who has become famous as the initiator and co-pilot of Solar Impulse. And that's a project, uh, a plane, uh, which flew around the globe on solar power. Now, however, uh, Bertrand is not in the air. He's working on changing things for the better on the ground. So let's Let's check out this conversation together. So hey, this is Robin Wouters for uh, Tech.eu. I'm sitting down with Mr. Bertrand Picard uh, at the Change Now Summit here in Paris. Mr. Picard, of course, uh, famous for the first um, non-stop balloon flight back in 99, so more than 20 years ago, Jesus. Uh, and of course, uh, the solar-powered flight. Um, but maybe I'll let you sort of uh, describe your uh, background and your achievements so far. Yes, I'm, uh, I started as a medical doctor to explore the inner world as a psychiatrist and psychotherapist. And on the same time, I was going in my exploration of the outer world with ballooning, going around the world nonstop in a Breitling orbiter balloon and uh, solar impulse, solar powered airplane to fly around the world and promote the, the use of clean technologies, renewable energies, sh show that they can achieve impossible goals, and now trying to implement these technologies everywhere on the ground. The Solar Impulse Foundation has launched for this the, the challenge of selecting and labeling 1,000 solutions that protect the environment, but in a profitable way. So it's a, really a way to speak the language of the people we want to convince, to show them that protection of the environment brings more money more profits, more advantages, more job creation than destroying the environment. Great. So this foundation has been uh, in existence for how long and how does it work concretely? What do you do concretely to, to make those changes happen? Well, the foundation existed since the beginning of the Solar Impulse project. Uh, it was 
used to communicate around solar uh, energy, about energy efficiency, about protection of the environment. It was used to uh, run educational programs for, for children. And uh, now what we do is that we go into all the innovation world, the startup world, like change now here, uh, like VivaTech, like uh, CleanTech Group in the United States, and offer the opportunity to the startups or even to big companies uh, to be selected uh, to become a part of the 1000 Solution Challenge. That means to be part of the portfolio of solutions that prove that clean technologies are profitable to protect the environment. So we have uh, 400 experts who are assessing the solutions under the angle of the credibility. It has to work today. It has to be on the market or ready to go on the market already today. It has to protect the environment over the entire life cycle. And it has to, to uh, uh, generate profit and job creation. If all three criteria are met, then they get the label. And the label allows them to be promoted to investors, to public authorities, to go into public procurement with all the support of the Solar Impulse Foundation. Great. Uh, I'm sure that's a message that resonates very well within scientific community. People are already like innovators. Um, but the world is sort of polarizing in that sense because there's a still climate change denial. There's a, on a political front, of course, a lot moving. So is that something that you care about that you want to change as well? Or do you not focus on that too much? No, I focus a lot on that, especially knowing that a lot of key decision makers are people who are more interested by money, power, control and personal advantage uh, than uh, to do good for the environment and for humankind. So this is why I focus on the profitability of these solutions in order to speak their language. My, my main argument is the fact that even if there was no climate change, it would make sense economically to replace the old polluting and inefficient infrastructures by modern ones. This is the market of the century. This is the way to create more jobs and make more profit. And by the way, it also protects the environment. So, yes, it's good in many ways, right? Um, you were in the, at the World Economic Forum uh, in Davos uh, last week. What are some of the conversations that stuck with you? The founder of the World Economic Forum has asked all the companies who are members of the forum to be carbon neutral by 2050, which is a good step uh, on his side. Now, in order to become effective, it needs, on the side of the companies, to not only announce that they will do it, but to announce the program that will lead to this goal. It means that they have to take the measures internally to have an account on how much carbon is produced, where, when, and how, to have incentives to reduce these carbon emissions. And it's not just to say, we're going to reduce carbon emissions. It is really every day, every morning, every hour, every minute, how the employees will be encouraged or forced to do it. So it's a procedure the companies have to put into place and not just a big announcement. Right. So those are the big corporations. Uh, you mentioned startups. Uh, of course, our publication uh, targets innovators and, and young entrepreneurs. Um, so what would you tell them? What's your message to them? Do they need to focus on a certain area? What, do they, what can they do to, to make changes? Well, today, the big problems are in energy, in waste, and in inefficiency. So 
it's clear that the most you can develop sustainable energy sources and make the price lower, the best it is. And uh, we have to focus on the price in order to be competitive. Uh, when you see that uh, solar energy now in Portugal costs only 1.6 cents per kilowatt hour, you see it's fantastic. Now it has to be everywhere like that, the case in the world. Uh, on energy efficiency, we have to understand that three quarters of the energy that is produced is lost, wasted, because of all the inefficiency of the systems. So we have to go into smart grids, into smart cities, into clever way to link the production of renewable energy, the storage and the consumption. We have to digitalize all that. So here there's a huge market. And now in circular economy, it's a lot and a lot of money to be done because the wastes that were just thrown away, burned or thrown in the ocean have a value. And this value has to be used in order to make new products, to reuse, to recycle, to give a second life. And here also there's much more jobs to be created than by throwing all this stuff in the ocean. Um, what about policymakers? What can they do? Uh, for example, the EU Green Deal, is that something that you think is ambitious enough? Um, do you, can you get behind it? Behind what? The EU uh, Green Deal. So there are the yes. policies on uh, cutting uh, carbon. I would say that for a long time the European Commission was speaking and now they have a real program, a real program. And I support it completely. And you see that it, it, it comes from individuals who take the risk of doing something good, which is not so often. A lot of politicians believe that if they don't do anything, they have more chances to be reelected. Right. And some of them are taking some risk. The president of the European Commission wants to change something. Emmanuel Macron in France wants to change something. In Scandinavia also, Portugal, uh, Morocco, uh, California, they really want to change things. But the problem is that it's not the majority of the politicians who are working like that. And we have really to push the political world to move faster. Right. Great. Um, one last message uh, that you want to give to our audience of uh, tech entrepreneurs and investors. You have to fulfill your dream. You have to ignore the people who tell you it's impossible. You have to give yourself the means to do it. You have to create alliances between people who have a goodwill, people who want to make the world better. It's, it's important. And you have to prove that your technology is profitable and at the same time protects the environment. Here we can help you with the Solar Impulse Foundation. It's not for profit. If you want to have the label, it will be a help for you. And of course, you have as innovators to reach out to bigger companies and to, um, and to governments. The, the startups today, they are heard. People li listen to innovators. There's a good reputation for startups. You have to speak out. Great. That's a fantastic message to conclude with. Uh, thank you so much for your time and enjoy the rest of the summit. Thank you. Thank you. And congratulations for what you're doing. Thank you. 
And this is it for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, do tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at podcast at tech EU. Thank you for listening. Enjoy your week and talk to you next Monday. Bye-bye. Thank you.